HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Welcome back to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture. I'm Wythe Marshall. Hey, and I'm Melissa Metric. And we're super excited uh, to have a great guest today. Ben Flanner. From? Brooklyn Grange. Oh, that worked perfectly. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Ben. I took the cue. <laughs> Wasn't sure. Uh, yeah, and we're here in uh, the Heritage Radio Network uh, booth. Um, Studio? Is that what it's called? Studio. 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 Very fancy. It's kind of a booth. Yeah. Studio booth. Yeah. Uh, so thanks, Ben, for coming on down, and we're, we're excited. We're fans of The Grange. Um, been reading about it and have visited uh, many times, and it's it's nice to do like a more of a sit-down, and maybe we can learn a little more, go a little deeper. Um, and I, it's also one of these interesting farms. Um, so Brooklyn Grange has multiple sites and has grown over the years and has different activities, as I understand it, and lots of different crops. So I think there's like a lot to cover and things we, we don't know, um, even as, as fans. Uh, so yeah, we're just, uh, we're going to cover hopefully some of that material. Um, and then, you know, maybe widen out and hear from you as a, as a professional in green infrastructure and, and urban ag about, um, other big picture topics. Does that sure. sound pretty cool? Sounds great. Great. Uh, yeah. So Melissa, do you want to kick us off? I mean, you... uh, well, yeah, I guess so. So Ben, do you want to just introduce yourself and, you know, just what you do? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm a co-founder and I'm the, the CEO at Brooklyn Grange. Um, we started it in 2010. So we're 12 years old. Um, and, um, I kind of came into it through a love of agriculture. Um, I'd been living in New York for a bit and um, was was actually prepared to leave the city to go to work at a farm. I really wanted to get into agriculture in a, in a bigger way. And then through kind of a series of um, some luck and fortune and matching up with certain people, figured out that maybe we could try to set up an acre on a, on a green roof, on a roof. And um, that's kind of how it started back in 2009 and, and 2010. Um, and, and we've been growing vegetables and, and doing all sorts of things ever since then. What was your like initial push in being in New York City that made you want to farm? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I'd been, I came here uh, in my early twenties, and um, you know was was very much enjoying it and, and enjoying for all the reasons that one comes to a city for all the energy and ideas and um, th- things to to do and grow and as, at least as a person, <laughs> maybe not as much as plants, plants growing, and. Um, 
Uh, I started, uh, well, I was working at a desk job and that just wasn't quite right for me um, personally. Um, I, I wasn't able to move my body enough and, and different things like that. And I had kind of come from a restaurant background, like when I was a little bit younger and uh, working. And I started visiting some farms in the Hudson Valley and Long Island and, and even started becoming uh, sort of like a hobby of mine. Whenever I traveled or anywhere I went, I would always try to visit farms. Um, the first time I really visited a diversified organic vegetable farm, it just kind of blew my mind. I just kind of fell in love with it immediately between all the mixed variables that were at play between all the different crops, the organization where my brain went with like, how do the economics work? You know, how does the sales work, uh, the irrigation and everything. Do you remember the farm? So, um, yeah, I think it was McEnroe up in, um, up oh, in wow. Hudson Valley. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Oh, cool. Yeah, that that was definitely one of the one of the first that I'd seen. And I grew up all around agriculture in in Wisconsin, um, outside of Milwaukee. But it was just corn and soy, you know. So it's it's totally different. You know, we'd gardened a bit and had gardens and raspberries as a kid and carrots and cucumbers and stuff like that. So understood plants, but I'd never seen like a few acres of diversified organic veg. You know, where like every row looks different, right. with different colors and different phases of growth and stuff like that. And, that's really what kind of pulled me in. Can you describe that first one acre farm for, you know, especially for folks outside of the city or, you know, who haven't visited the Grange, like what was that like? And what, what, what does, you know, what is, what is the initial farm look like that you put on a roof? Yeah. <laughs> may not be the first thing people think of when they think farm is yeah. rooftop. You know? I'd be happy to describe it succinctly. It was a um, six story building in Long Island city. We signed a 10 year lease on it. And, um, we put about a million some pounds of, of soil on it. It was about eight to 10 inches of depth. Uh, we lifted up with a crane. Um, underneath the soil, we installed a green roof system, which is very much part of our business right now and in installing green roofs also. Um, drainage layer, drainage mats, um, and then the soil above that. Um, and we've, we've come a long ways with soil too since then because in the green roof industry, there's um, extensive and intensive soils typically or media that are used for for growing uh, uh, plants and we went with the intensive because it had a higher organic matter and um usually used for deeper deeper soils but since since then we've we've really put a lot of work into evolving the soil into um an agricultural blend that works on roofs that also sort of emulates a sandy loam that you'd find in a in a good good field at ground level yeah, and that's so important, right? Because it's like when you're on a roof, there's so much exposure. So you don't want all the soil to blow away, right? Right, And also you don't have, you can't have that much soil on a roof because of the weight. Yeah. So that mixture is so key of like that magic right. soil that's going to give you all the nutrients, going to give like enough of a structural source for the plants, but also not blow away. Right. Mm -hmm. And from a business perspective, it's novel. So it's like... You know, there are not that many rooftop farms, especially when the first Grange farm was founded, if I'm correct in saying that. Right. Like, there, there was no blends out there. <laughs> so yeah. you had to figure that stuff out. And right, like, right. It's just not a standard thing in construction to be like, yeah, I'm going to put a million pounds of soil on a roof and, and sort of, you know, I imagine that must have been a little scary to kind of do the math and be like, I hope this works. Well, <laughs> like, yeah. And also maybe what's scarier is how did you exactly. guys get it up there? Yeah. Well, that one we craned. Um, and, uh, you know, the green roof industry was already fairly established at that point, but it was designed for a completely different plant. Yeah. It was, it was created around sedum, which basically will die if you give it too much nutrient, whereas vegetables are totally nutrient hogs, you know, and they, they just want as, especially annual vegetables, which, which we especially were focused on. They, they want as much nutrient as possible. Um, so yeah, so the default was this super granular mix that was great for sedum, you know, that was um, kind of evolved by the Germans. Yeah, so we had to take it from there. And with all those variables that you just mentioned, Melissa, yeah, the we needed some structure. Um, you don't want too much erosion. And, you know, so a lot of that stuff, we, it took took a few years to kind of learn that and figure it out. And we're still figuring it out, but we've, we've come a long way with the, with the plants, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, to, to fast forward, like you've successfully grown vegetables, grown, sold, donated vegetables for over a decade. So, um, clearly the True. figuring it out on, and on multiple roofs now. So it's, it's been, um, wh whatever growth process, hopefully we'll get into some of those specifics, but, mm -hmm. um, overall seems like a success from the outside, right? Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very yeah. much. Um, and it, it continues to evolve too. Yeah. yeah. Well, on, on that note, great, 
Great word. Um, how has your idea of an urban farmer evolved from when you first started to now? Like what your, yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it evolves constantly. Um, we have different constraints and different variables than we had at the beginning. We also have more knowledge of soil. Um, we have uh, substantially greater costs. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of news about inflation right now, um, the 10, 10 plus percent that we were hitting with our food inflation. Um, as a farmer, you don't feel quite as sympathetic to that because you kind of look back at the last few decades and say, well, our food has been completely underinflated, you know, way below the inflation, like the already super low inflation rates, even of, of like wage growth and everything. You know, we were selling bunches of kale for three bucks in our first year in, in 09 and, and 2010. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're still at three bucks sometimes on the same wow. bunch, you know, it's like. Finally, we can go up to four, you know, and that is a significant uh, increase. Um, but uh, where where was I going, <laughs> going with that? Yeah, so there hasn't been a lot of food inflation. So basically, for us, the push was to figure out how to increase our, our efficiency in terms of what we were growing and in that certain amount of space. Um, and then over time, a lot of our other costs have, have, have increased. So especially in, in the recent few years, um, we've been sort of reassessing our general strategy, which was always to maximize revenue mm-hmm. and say like, okay, highest growing crops, even if they're super high labor, even mm-hmm. if they're tough on the soil, on Mother mm-hmm. Nature too, maximize that. And in the last few years, we've been sort of taking the foot off the gas and saying, well, wow, if, even, if we have, even if we grow some plants that don't provide quite as much or if we don't make the turns quite as quickly like between crop successions or whatever um it might balance out for us too and and we can do it with like a slightly smaller uh team and a little bit more balance with the team of what they're doing and also taking care of the soil mm-hmm. a little bit better and and you know we've been sort of um joining that the the push you know to to not till as much and not release that carbon and really try to develop that structure and I personally have also learned a lot more about soil biology in the last, you know, mm. like got five, six years, start, you know, more than I knew, especially at the beginning. Um, and we've never obviously been doing deep tilling. We never had a plow or anything like that mm-hmm. on a roof. So I didn't really think of us as having farming practices that were in that category of mm-hmm. like the heavy till type of a thing. But you still, you know, you're working. We have these, um, we have, we have like a, a tilly that has, um, uh, a 48 volt lithium battery and you know it gets kind of deep it roughs up the soil a little bit and we used to have a mantis that we'd that we'd that we'd till through it every time we turned a arugula bed and stuff so so we're really trying to like really slow down on some of that stuff yeah. and um uh just create as much balance as possible yeah it's interesting to think about rooftop soil biology yeah have you worked with soil scientists like compared to other like outdoor soils uh not on a roof and <laughs> tried to learn some specifics about the microbes or the the structure the, the pockets of air i mean i'm sure the water flows a little differently too than you know yeah. it's a totally flat environment for uh, sure yeah there there have been some we've done quite a bit of work with with cornell through the years um but most of the research that that yoshi did as the person that we were working with, it was over three years. Uh, most of it was more like physical properties, um, but but we have al- always been really interested in, in the biology too. It's it's tough to learn a whole lot about it. You know, there's a f- the soil food web or a c- couple places you can send tests to, but it's hard to like really learn yeah. your biology. It's it's a little more of like a feel thing. I yeah, yeah, like yeah. Yeah, that would be interesting to compare it to like. Um, I don't know, farmers in the Andes or something like that, like on mountains and right, what right. kind of, yeah. yeah. And speaking of that, um, you know, you don't know because there's always so many variables, but you have your intuition. But um, when we started the most recent farm in Sunset Park, it was by by far the closest to a sandy loam soil. So it's a different blend than we historically use, a little lower organic matter, actually. And um, it just really felt like it took a couple of years to settle in. And again, you don't know for sure, but it, it really did feel like, oh, I wonder if it's sort of restoring its structure and its biology. Um, it kind of had this like puff of super nutrient like output like for the first season, but then the second season was pretty pretty light. Um, and then 
into the third and the fourth, it seemed like it started to rebound in it. And it always felt like, oh, maybe the, the microorganisms yeah. are sort of uh, reestablishing themselves. And there's probably like some bursts of oxygen in the soil in that first year that made a lot of nutrient um, super available. Yeah, there's probably a succession but, with microbes, but then also with um, just very small, you know, with with insects and, and uh, like with vermiculation, you know, with, with little worms going through. There's probably layers created over time as those organisms like develop in a healthy soil just like an outdoor farm but it's it's interesting to think about what would be different or similar with a slightly smaller layer you know on a roof Um, right right but the the practices you're doing are you know essentially they're they're all organic right i mean they're i I guess that's a question just for for listeners are y'all certified organic or would you describe it as organic practices but not certified or how would you describe your your it's organic practices but but we haven't been certified got it yeah um, and just building off what you said, um, could you describe the farms briefly so we know, because there's multiple of them and they're all kind of different and, and cool. So sure. it takes on a little tour. <laughs> so we have we have three locations that, that sum up to a little bit over five acres where we've signed leases and, and we run um, our own um, Brooklyn Granges. Um, we sell the food through um, CSA and farmer's market and we also donate about we're up to about 40 maybe even 45 percent of of our food oh, wow. uh, gets donated to um food pantries as well and a couple wow. of different local um uh organizations um we also manage two other farms that are about an acre in size um off-site for for clients so they're not actually like our own brooklyn grange farm all the food belongs to them um but that's another model that we've picked up um, and then we also maintain uh, dozens of other various size gardens um, that, that are maybe not edible or, you know, different perennial gardens, even even a little bit of indoor, um, like green walls and things like mm-hmm. that um, across the city. So it's a little bit hard to like exactly say, oh, we have three, three farms, you know, because we have like lots of other kind of things going on and and uh, a, a couple teams that, that do do it all. Yeah, it's, I always found it so amazing, um, you know, being an urban farmer, urban gardener, um, and having a business, how sometimes it's really hard to make a living off of just selling lettuce, you know, or just selling these certain things. So just the amazing programming that you all have and and the umbrella that um, encompasses Brooklyn Grange, like all the things that are underneath it, right? So it's like like what you're talking about, the... the um, the company that kind of builds people's private gardens and other things. And then of course, like the edible farms and then like the event space. And there's also a like non-for-profit, right. That's right. kind of a part. And yeah. We host events on the roof and, um, and we also install, install green roofs and gardens. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And all that diversification is, is absolutely critical to where we are today. Um, uh, in terms of how, how the business works and, and where we're focused on, on our growth and, and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for the business, I remember, cause I was reading the book that you all have up on the roof that Anastasia, oh, cool. yeah. yeah. Uh, Anastasia Plakis, Plakis, mm-hmm. yeah. Plakis. Um, one of the, Plakis, um, one of the founders, um, who actually helped start the garden at Roberta's as well mm-hmm. that now that we're at Roberta's, but, um, uh, uh, I remember in the beginning of the book, she was kind of talking about um, these three aspects that make like the Brooklyn Grange truly a sustainable business. Do you, it was like three different things. It may have been the three P's. Yes. People, planet, and profit. I think so. Kind of those three things that you kind of try to treat equally if you can. (laughs) To try to be a a non-exploitative or or a non-extractive business. That's kind of like a way that I like to try to explain it is is we do our best to not be, you know, extracting from our community or from the environment uh, and run a business. Yeah. Yeah, the pillars of sustainability broadly construed nowadays, yeah, is not just environmental, but but also taking into account people and, and justice issues. Um, right. Yeah, and and then you have to ha- have economics. You have to have some way to sustain yourself and do it over and over again. If you're gonna, in this case, like steward land and grow food and help people in some way, so that's right. It's, right. it's cool that you've pioneered a new model, and I, I guess I'm wondering if you could say a little about the funding. If I remember, I think the book is Farm on a Roof, right? Um, there's a mention of like. Like there was like a Kickstarter, right? Like this this farm was not um, this farm uh, has has evolved in a lot of ways. It seems like in terms of as a business as well. 
Um, and I wonder if you can go into some of that or some of the, the pain points or learnings in terms of that mix of different activities that y'all do now, um, beyond just, you know, growing like, you know, kale and lettuce. Right. Um, and, and the fact that it, that there are different things you're trying all the time, like, is that fun for you? I mean, I'm just really, I'm genuinely curious about kind of how you figured out how to make a commercial farm succeed in New York city, um, on rooftops specifically. Sure. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, the financial journey has been, um, well, 12 years, but feels longer than that even. <laughs> um, but but we started out by raising kind of a shoestring budget uh, at the way beginning, and we did the whole installation ourselves and with, with help from friends and Roberta's and um, and everything. We got that soil up there for, for basically that the $200,000 that it cost at the beginning that, 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 that we raised um, via Kickstarter and a tiny bit of equity and a tiny bit of debt, basically, um, and, and, and some events. Um, and then, yeah, o- over time, basically what, what m- our focus has always been that, that the farm can, um, we, we've always sort of looked at all the departments independently in terms of our accounting. And, and in recent years, we've even started to gray that a little bit. Um, but but it sort of made sense to me to kind of look at each sort of area of the uh, of the business and make sure that each one of them had at least its own profitability or break even point. And over time, the farm actually has has evolved from a small profit to basically now it's just like a break even on its own. If you just look at the growing and selling of the vegetables, um, we, we do, uh, this year sh- should probably be in the realm of about $600,000 of, of vegetable sales between those, wow. those three outlets that I mentioned. Um, but it's basically a dollar in a dollar out. I like to say, you know, like if, if we sell a carrot for a dollar, uh, for better or for worse, we spend about 95 cents yeah. up to a dollar yeah. on the variable operational costs of just of just doing that and it's mostly mostly people people's yep. like 75 80 percent of yep. it just paying paying folks to just get it all keep it all together you know then there's some small amounts of materials and seeds and everything like that um rough numbers um yeah and then uh over time we've also quickly evolved into hosting events and that started super small um, but that was actually one of our most, well, that was the largest investment we've ever made in the farm, um, believe it or not, was building the event space in, in, down in Sunset Park. Um, and, and we raised some equity and, and some, some debt for that. Um, and that was sort of like our big leap because um, we kind of knew, okay, we can get another farm on a roof and everything. But at the same time, we were having lots of demand for events and people wanted to do them in, in the winter and we didn't have a four seasons place. We didn't, you, you know, even have bathrooms up on the roof or anything like that. And pretty important. Yeah. Our other it's locations. like take the elevator, go right. down the hall. Yeah, there's a hose there's for a- water. <laughs> <laughs> there's wash the side of the building. I mean, <laughs> wash your hands here. Yeah. Yeah. A couple, 20 amps of, of electrical service. Yeah. So, so that was like the big thing that we did with that expansion was build that event space. Um, and that creates just like much more of a hub too, because we have a team that's in the kitchen and running the events, and we have the farm team, and it makes the the, the whole roof a lot more uh, like complete too. In some ways, just with like a lot more going, and it allows us to have different types of people on the roof and and everything, and and um, you know, and, and then the whole goal is with that, and then also started installing green roofs and maintaining other spaces, and they they're all almost like three separate businesses in in some ways and this has been like really enlightening especially like around the beginning of covid and i think it kind of like all sort of like surfaced is that we're running three different businesses that all have societally completely different economics Hmm. and different market rates for wages and different expectations of culture and everything between like the events business which stems with like bartending and waiting and and catering and stuff like that farming which we know about on this podcast you know it's an underpaid super overworked you know super exploitative industry and um as we know it's extremely to compete with that you know with some of the the labor practices around the world in our country and then landscaping also is sort of like a hybrid in between the two you know with with gardening and, and and um and so it has been um a challenge, but also I think really a, a function of the fact that we're still here, I'll say success, 
is that we've kind of like really pushed to create a synergy between them. So everybody kind of feels like we're on, you know, we're the, it all does flow into one pot and it is one business that, and for all the, like these three different revenue arms, like they all have to support each other and feel like they are together, you know, and like one would not exist without the other. And that is very much the truth. Um, but we've had, we've learned a lot and, and made a lot of really important adjustments through the years to sort of like keep that together. Because um, I think a lot of people in business would sort of like look at that and say, you're doing three different businesses. Like, how can you be, right. how can you be that good at any of them? You know, you're spreading, you're um, gonna, before you spread yourself too thin. Yeah. Um, obviously not just one person. We, we have, uh, you know, lots of people, 60, 70 people on payroll in the, in the peak of the summer. But we have to still give that 110% to each area and just have everybody kind of like feeling um, like like we're working on it together and that that uh, that chemistry is important. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other businesses cropping up in the same space that you're seeing? I mean, are in other cities? Um, have you had any thoughts about expansion? I mean, I'm just you know curious again about that model and whether that's sort of um, very unique to your team and, and effort and New York City. Or if you could see sort of like, yeah, there's a, there's actually room for this and an appetite um, to have more rooftop space converted, um, not just for food growing, but yeah, for enjoying it in a different way, as you say, like bringing the events in, you know, as, as synergistic with with growing the food. Um, they make they each support each other. I think that's an interesting way to kind of pitch it as opposed to just, oh, we should be like in a productivist way using these rooftops to grow food. Or like, yeah, everybody likes a wedding on a roof. Um, it's like you yeah. found a way to like em- enhance both those, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I think future expansion will have to be holistic with all of that because um, as the business has matured, as we pay more, as we are trying to like really maturely compete in New York um, or not just compete, but just exist and, and pay folks and everything. Um, the model of the agriculture alone, um, I don't think we'll ever get back to that being like something that we'd expand into or, or whatnot. Um, really, the, the growth that we're currently really focused on is green infrastructure, building out green roofs and, and green spaces, um, covering more square feet across the city with, with, with any type of vegetation, be it sedum or um, perennials, native grasses, flowers, um, or food, um, more frequently than you might expect. We a- actually have a consulting, um, you know, a consultation with a client and they kind of say, hey, we want, we got 10,000 square feet or something like that. We want to build a farm. And we, you know, we talk it through and say, okay, well, what's the governance and how's the access and everything. And there's a lot of variables and, and we have learned you know, the hard way that, that growing food is, is extremely difficult and, and, and challenging and also just very dependent on having the right, the right pieces in place. So often what we'll end up with is, okay, well, we can grow some like very high labor, you know, high, high operational demand, like food or annual vegetables. But then there's that gambit from there because those are the highest. And then you can sort of take it, take it down a notch to, okay, well, what about perennial food? You know, uh, like berries or you know blueberries, raspberries, uh, things like that, um, rhubarb. You know, you know the perennials, and then take that to like possibly some other shrubs or things like that, or other perennials that are not edible or not traditionally edible at least. Um, and then all the way down to sedum, which is probably the lowest maintenance. Um, and there's a reason why the green roof industry did did evolve with sedum. It's because it's so hardy and so efficient and so easy to grow, you know, and uh, often that is what what we recommend because you know our main goal at this point is covering uh, surface area with green infrastructure uh, for whatever the needs of, of of a client would be. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for ten years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, 
serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. When you look at New York City roofs, so many buildings are very old, um, but like more like 1970s old than pre-war old. <laughs> and so it's like the integrity of, of a lot of roofs. It seems like you would have to really suss out the situation and the roof if it's even viable, sure. you know? Because sure. I've yeah. heard so many times when people are just like, we could cover every roof yeah. with what it's like. But let's think about the roof. Let's right. think about like yeah. the last time the landlord was up there and like if there's leakage, it, like when it was actually built. So all these different things. But it's great that you all have this um, these options, right? So it's like if it can't take a lot of weight or something, like maybe that's where sedum would, yeah. you know, yeah. if if it you want it to be low maintenance, but it can take some weight. That's where you would have your fruit trees or your raspberries or whatever. Different so grasses just, or perennials. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Or if a client wants to go species, yeah. like really wild, because um, I, I was just fortunate enough to take a tour of the Javits Center farm. So I was hoping you could mention that because there's um, a food forest, uh, right. right? Which is like very different. That's like the going the other direction in a way, or maybe not in terms of an intensivity of, of labor, but in terms of mm-hmm. just like crop size, I mean, that that's like a, a whole different way of thinking about a roof and what, what a roof can support. So I, I was both, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised and, and just the mix of plants was really impressive. So I don't know that that seems very different than sedum, you know, <laughs> and just, right. you know, the, the food forest falls somewhere in the middle of that gambit that, uh, that, that, okay. or the, yeah. yeah, that, that, uh, the spectrum of, and, and, and it's that, that's something that we're, we're really proud of. Yeah. At, at the Javits center. So it's, uh, it's about three and a half feet, of soil um, that was well planned, even slightly predating our involvement in, in, in as consultants in the project, um, and that's a heavier engineering, obviously. Like to Melissa's question about the engineering of different buildings, um, structural engineers are pretty pretty adept at breaking it down and assessing the weight and looking at the wet weight. Of course, you always look at the wet weight of soil, not the dry weight, <laughs> right. because it will get wet. <laughs> um, and we installed about 38 fruit trees, um, mostly apple, I think about uh, six pear trees, and um, spaced them around 10 or 11 feet. Um, that was last spring, spring of, of 2021. And um, they established throughout the, the season. And we, we quickly kind of observed that this was an appropriate long-term spacing. Um, and they were decent-sized trees. They were five, six years old, already, you know, some of them 10 feet high already. Uh, but there was a ton of sun getting in around the tree canopies. Um, and we at first just filled it up with, with uh, Dutch white clover and, you know, came in and filled up like the green base and nitrogen fixer, all, all the good things with it. Um, but continued conversation with, with the Javits Center and said, hey, what do you think about a food forest? And we can, we can really build an understory here and actually an understory that would get a decent amount of sun for, probably for at least like five years until the tree canopy grow, comes in a little bit tighter, you know? And that's the cool thing about plants, especially in this environment, is that they are constantly evolving and, you know, they're going to change and move and everything and the, the canopy grows in. Um, so we, we filled in some of the inter- interstitials, like where there was a little bit more room and we put in a couple of pawpaws, some elderberry, service, service berry, uh, beach plum, which is doing great over by the water there. <laughs> um, a couple other trees in, in that sort of category and then sort of went down um, the base and, and put in a, a lot of different edible perennials. Um, there's there's rhubarb, asparagus, currants, gooseberries, grapes, um, lots of different like wild onions and um, anise hyssops and, you know, perennials like that. There's a, there's wind block with, with um, different um, uh, native species. There's, there's yaupan, which was Orion's favorite, um, which is the only caffeinated uh, leaf in native to North America. Huh. Yeah. Never heard of that. Yeah. It actually has history as a tea with, with, um, you know, cultures from, from long before 
before now. Um, and um, yeah, filled it in. We put some mushroom blocks in in um, in the wood chips around the trees too, and and just just like really filled in that space and and um, compare. You, you know, it doesn't put out uh, as much food as an annual vegetable farm like the other section of the Javits Center on the on the acre of vegetables that we have. Um, but but it produces quite quite a bit of of diversity too, and um, uh, it just seems like a model that could be replicated. Um, maybe not on roofs because that's a lot of engineering to yeah. put three and a half feet of soil on on roofs. Maybe of course, but think of all the the park space that we have. That's right, you yeah, know, and a little bit emblematic of what they did at um, Governor's Island with with the. The fruit trees too, but that's just a grass, just like a grass, you know, mowed, mowed lawn below it. Um, it's kind of similar spacing too, if you go and look at, but um, I would think there could be random acres, you know, and people have been pitching the parks department for, for years about doing annual vegetables. And I think one of the pushbacks has always been, oh, it's so much work and so much maintenance. Yeah. Um, but but the food forest is not a ton, you know, like these trees that you, you can prune them once a year, you know, you do some stuff with them, but yeah. um, especially if there's good air. That is one really critical thing we've learned, mm. especially with those fruit trees, is that that to have a, a high amount of, um, of of breeze is is super good for the you know for warding off some of the leaf funguses and stuff like that. But yeah, I could totally see that. Um, it would be so amazing though if there could be food forests on roofs all over the city, because I just think about like also migratory birds and that type of thing, and creating yeah. this whole other almost like mountain right. environment for them mm-hmm. where they're already kind of up there. And I guess one of the issues with putting it in the parks is um, the age old thing. Also why they don't want street trees to, to have fruit is because of pest problems, right? Mm. So the fruit's going to drop, what's going to eat the fruit. And then all of a sudden you're going to have a lot more, a lot more squirrels. creatures, a lot Lost. more squirrels, squirrels terrible. with really long yeah. tails. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, but the, also the like diversity. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say that the Audubon Society is yeah. is up on the Javits roof and Dustin Partridge, um I don't I'm not gonna get the numbers right, but he's very excited about the huge increase in the number of, of species of birds that he's seen this summer since that food forest oh, came great. up and different insects and and whatnot. So Yeah, the, the Audubon out. um and the Wildlife Conservation Society do um the Green Roof Research Alliance, which I don't know if Grange is a part of or shares data with, but that's a research consortium to understand New York City's green roofs and really, yeah, like uh, show some of these benefits, I think, in numbers. It'd be great to have them on and, and learn more about what they do, but it, it does seem like there's a lot of hope and New York could, could draw on case studies like this new food forest and say, like, look, it, like you said, it's not that hard. Um, and to the breeze point, I mean, there's so much coast. I would think that we have a lot of, as you say, random acres close enough to the water where they're getting a good breeze right yeah Yeah. and if it's not trees you know if the engineering's not available because it is a bit of a privilege to 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 do the 300 pounds per square foot um edible meadows i mean that's that's one of the more exciting types of green roofs that i could imagine too yeah um kind of like the kingsland wildflower concept up in greenpoint um for anyone that's aware of that um but you know sprinkle in a whole bunch more perennial brambles and different things like that and just kind of let them go and and it's food for people and for animals and maybe link it to a business like a food business like a restaurant in order to make it a little easier on that that to eliminate some of the pests like oh there's just random apples and pears around it's like well if they're gonna get harvested and used sure sure. yeah you know like as i take it the javits model right they're using that food right right so my my weird brain is just like Time to go out to the brambles, pick some stuff. I'm like, oh, God, don't want to go out to the brambles. But. <laughs> it may not be super efficient. <laughs> <laughs> or just think about, like, going through all the raspberry bushes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, that does sound... Um, yeah, edible forest. So what else would an edible... Uh, sorry, um, prairie kind of look like? Or not uh, prairie. What did you say? Inedible. Uh, meadow. Meadow, meadow. Not prairie. Meadow. Um, well, let's brainstorm. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. In a, in a previous conversation, we were talking about, um, perennial wheats. So mm-hmm. that might be an interesting, could that be a part of a edible meadow totally. on a roof? Yeah. Maybe different, different berries. Um, some of the other understory plants that, that I may have mentioned, like 
rhubarb, horseradish, asparagus, um, things that don't require a super deep soil, um, things that are well adapted to our climate that can kind of spread on their own, do their own thing. Anise hyssop um, forever. Of, of course, anise hyssop <laughs> oh <my> everywhere. <laughs> All the agastaches. <laughs> um, yeah, different. Mm. I mean, the wild onions, chives, of course, um, garlic chives do great in that kind yeah. of environment. Love and there could chives. be uh, other non-edibles too, of course, to create the diversity and then um, and and some balance with it, and then and just kind of let it go. But but like a meadow with a theme of edibles, it could also be sort of like tea based or something like yeah, that. Medicinal. Because, yeah, medicinal. Would echinacea yeah. be considered a meadow? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Would, yeah. I should. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Things like that that we could that, that can be gathered and and uh, you know consumed as as teas and tinctures and whatnot. Oh yeah. man, now I'm sold. Just edible. Yeah meadows and and food forests on all the roofs mm-hmm. it reminds me of getting the well. next step is natural well. dye yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah 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 <laughs> but just these these ruderal spaces these, these spaces um you know on yeah, top rural. of buildings yeah between buildings on the water whatever within parks but in areas where that, that aren't frequently trafficked that aren't the yeah. soccer fields um there, there is space in new york city and even though it, the spaces it's such a premium there are spaces and i think that's such a takeaway mm-hmm. from sort of the story of the grange overall um, in addition to a few other, you know, community gardens, of course, like there's, there's other sort of examples, but it's, it's cool to see how the Grange has explored different spaces in different ways and, and found ways to make it work. And, and as a business in a sustainable way, as you're, you're saying, like the partnership with Javits seems like a big win. Just, I mean, from the outside, again, it's, it's such a big name. It's such a big building and to have a edible forest on top is, is really cool. <laughs> you know, it's just a nice, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a nice thing about New York city to, to point to in this era of, just continuing hyperdevelopment. It's like, well, at least they put in a food forest on yeah, Javits, right. you know? Yeah, we really appreciated their forward thinking. Yeah. To, to be able to do that. So, go, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that, of course, when, when we do our root arrow, you know, edible meadow, um, the first tree is probably going to be a mulberry. That's going to figure <laughs> out how to find its way up there. <laughs> and then we can decide whether or not we want to keep it or not. <laughs> but you can add some pawpaws and uh, yeah. maybe maybe nut trees. I know we're yeah. saying we're not going to do nut trees today. but <laughs> Yeah, the birds will bring lots yeah. of things. We did put our, our first hazelnut in uh, Sunset Park, but, oh, but okay. it's only oh, about wow. three or four feet high. And uh, huh. I admittedly don't know a ton about nut trees. But that's but okay. Yeah. Got one in there, though. Yeah. How are pawpaws doing up on a roof? Is it is it? Have you planted them at the Chavez? Well, actually, the... Um, the I, I, I don't know exactly why, if that was related to it, but of all the trees that we put in, the only two that died were pawpaws. They're in hard. The when we put them they in. They are hard. But I think I've, they're also I've tricky tried, to Yeah, I think they're yeah, tricky. Yeah, I think yeah. they're tricky. I've tried to grow them. And I think, so for folks who don't know what pawpaws are, um, ben, would you like to, well, I could, I could describe it. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a tree that is um, native to this area um, and also you could, um, it was found a lot in the South, um, and indigenous folk used to, um, harvest it and, and maybe plant it and use it all the time. But, um, they, it produces this fruit that, um, supposedly tastes like a custard or like a banana. Like it has this like really tropical kind of aspect to it. And it's a understory tree, right? So it's like kind of a smaller tree, but, uh. Yeah, I've never, I've never tried it. I think they've had it here before at Roberta's, definitely, because also the fruit doesn't ship well, so it's like you exactly. can't. That's largely why it hasn't become popular. Yeah, I mean, assuming people like the flavor, I, I do. I love it. Um, but yeah, you look at it wrong, and it turns brown. And, and <laughs> like you can't. It would not survive our distribution networks or yeah. supply chains. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is actually a couple of really healthy pawpaw trees at Greenwood Cemetery. And oh. they grow, um, I think strategically, they planted them just, uh, just I guess, west of one of the bigger ponds. So my thought was always that there's probably a lot of moisture in the, in the, you know, in the, sub, in the subsoil right there. Mm. And that is a thing for finding pawpaws in the wild is that they're often close to riverbeds and whatnot, even as understory trees. Oh, good to know. Um, but there's a couple really, really uh, healthy ones at, at Greenwood Cemetery right off that pond. And then there's a couple other a little bit further in that get a little more shade. Um, so it's interesting to kind of see how, how they survive. Um, I read a book on them that actually 
it, it drew the conclusion that that they actually will fruit much more in full sun and they can actually survive decently well in full sun. I think they have a little higher death rate than, say, like an apple orchard or something like that. So they're a little bit out of their element, but they do put out a lot more sun or a lot more fruit when they have the sun. And then in the woods, they can spread a lot more through their through their roots, through shoots and, and you know, expansion like that. And is some of that as a hard segue, because unfortunately we're running out of time as always as, as ever. Uh, um, is some of that related to changing climate and that they prefer a little warmer temperature? And as the state changes, pawpaws could sort of become more common. Or am I, am I misremembering maybe reading a, an article about sort of novel crops? And uh, I'm not aware. I think they might. I'm I'm not fully aware. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'd have to, I'd have to fact check that. I would. Yeah. I don't want to misspeak. It would maybe. make sense though, because the pawpaw belt is known to be a little bit south of us. Right. Like, That's what yeah. I thought. So yeah. Like Pennsylvania, yeah. Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. And New York City does actually have probably about the same zone as those places. Right. 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 And just That's outside stressful. the city, it's a lot colder. Yeah. 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 I love that idea of a pawpaw belt. <laughs> Sorry. Is that the right term? <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> there should be Corn more belt. plant belts. I mean, I'm sure there are. We just. Don't talk about them. Some might not be uh, belt shaped in a, in a neat way, you know, <laughs> right. when you look at the, the country. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, to, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, on that note with like climate change and, and um, storms, like I'm sure you all have thought about it, but how, how do you, how, how do you all plan that deal with that of just, you know, storms getting a little bit more powerful especially being on the roof and the exposure and hurricanes and all that other stuff like how do you all um do, does that go into your planning how how do you all kind of think about that yes it does it? Uh, yeah it, it's extremely relevant um you know like the 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 fairly slow-ish increase in temperature um hits us a little bit more um Subtly, I guess you'd say, you know, kind of get the question a lot like, oh, does your fall go longer? Does your spring start earlier? Um, but there's still so much volatility that it doesn't necessarily, you don't really know, you know, like this year, we still haven't had a hard frost. Things are still growing. So they're still photosynthesizing. So um, yeah, it, it's hard to say what's normal anymore in, in that regard. Um, but one of the things that does really keep us keep us on our toes and that we have to be continuing to, to plan for and learn and adapt to is the extremes of weather, like the super heavy storms and like the, you know, the, what, what did we get last fall? The eight inches, um, uh, the, the eight inches or so of rain oh. that, that we got um, in, within like 12 hours or oh, something yeah, like that. Oh, yeah, that's the flooding. The or was flash that the Yeah, that caused summer? a little bit of backup. And so, so we're definitely, you know, and also with other installations that we're doing, um, we're, we're constantly, and the whole industry is doing this too because cause you need, you, you know, you need scientific help with this. You, need, you yeah. need experts to be helping with that research to make sure that proper drainage is in place for, you know, what used to be the, the thousand year storm, which is now the, the hundred year storm or the 50 which is now year, the five storm, year or, storm, yeah, five <laughs> or whatever, whatever the, you get the ratio. Yeah. Um, you know, and you hear about uh, hurricanes just, just dumping on, on places. So yeah, we need, you know, for the green roof industry to, to, um, to continue to, to do its job, it needs to be able to be resilient to those, to those surprises. And you do have now some indoor production, on, but there's uh, the Sunset Park farm has a green greenhouse and Javits has a greenhouse. So is that something you're looking at as well, like maybe expanding or has that always been part of the model of sort of offering both? Like you said, you offer the spectrum from sedum to annuals. It, it, right. Do you see, you know, controlled environment ag as, as part of that toolkit as well? Or Yeah, the indoor agriculture is not quite as much of our niche, just to be honest. Um, you know, through the through the past, we've done a lot of microgreens and, and things like that, which are a little bit more in the family of vegetables, but obviously just like quick returns, 10 days, lots of seeds. <laughs> um, we actually don't do quite as many microgreens as we used to. We've streamlined it a little bit for just a few a few critical accounts and um, lots of pea shoots, actually, that, that we are doing right now for fresh Love direct. A lot of pea shoots. A lot of pea shoots. You know, it's a nitrogen fixer. It's like a it's, it's like the thing that feels pretty good. Um, and then we have a little bit of NFT uh, hydro. I actually, right, for Roberta's, we, we sell them a, a lot of basil for their frozen pizzas um, in that. And then we have a little bit of hydro at, at Javits Center, too. Um, I don't think we're going to be doubling down on the indoor or the hydro. I think we're going to let the other businesses that are sort of focused on that do that. And, and our niche is going to continue to be sort of like the green infrastructure, 
the biodiverse, um, you know, the outdoor, outdoor, uh, in terms of like our, our primary focus, but the greenhouse is huge. You know, you, you have it for the, the starts. You, you need one for, for starts for, to get everything out. And then it, it also does definitely allows us to keep on putting out some food through the winter. And, and that's very motivating and obviously very important. Like people have to do that. <laughs> you know, our, our, the food, the food industry, has, you know, the farming industry has, has to do that at least a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still waiting on the, uh, what is it like that it's the opening of gravity's rainbow of, of Pynchon where, uh, maybe it's the opening of it where the guy goes upstairs and he goes in the greenhouse and there's all these bananas and he makes like oh, a right. huge banana. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's like, where's the, where's they the did bananas tropical bananas banana greenhouse? greenhouse. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of acreage. Yeah. yeah. We, yeah. we do have a, a pretty fun, um, or an exciting grant that, that is going on at our sunset park greenhouse though. Actually it's through the, um, NRCS and it's, um, to research some more sustainable or um, naturally derived fertilizers for the hydro, because the typical hydro is, you know, basically blue water, or some sort of form of Haber-Bosch, um, uh, you know, sy- synthetics that, that's basically used in it. And then the sort of counter argument that gets people on board with it is that it's, you know, there's no runoff, it's re- using so much less water and all that kind of stuff. But um you know, as our generally organic method, organic uh, f- philosophy growers, um, that's something that we we're interested in. So, so we we're actually able to to get a grant that's that's funding us to do some research on that. And I will say, it's a it's a lot more tricky to use a naturally derived um, liquid fertilizer in hydroponics. Yeah. More variables, I'm, I'm yeah. guessing. Lots yeah. more variables, yeah, with pH and and holding the electric conductivity and and just knowing what's in it. And, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And also developing a, a bacterial colony. But yeah, that is interesting yeah. with like coming from such a, a base of growing sustainably and organically or like organic technique or whatever um, to then do indoor and then do these chemical fertilizers. Right. It's like a, this. I, I know like with my students, I have them do little hydro projects and I give them a chemically based fertilizer. And it's just right, like, I just feel the weird. Industry uses. Yeah, yeah. And I feel yeah. weird. I'm like, no, this is against like, everything is I teach them. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, wait, this is totally against what I'm teaching them. Here you go. You know? Right. So it's, um, that does seem like very important research in it. And it seems like a lot of people will be on board for that. Right. Of like more transparency, um, and just more sustainability in general with that whole process and technique um, and that kind of thing. Uh, speaking about sustainable, um, do you want to talk about um, the idea of having more, um, since you know you, you guys are farmers um, and in cities we can't really raise that many animals and that type of thing, but the idea of more of a plant-based diet, especially in like an urban world? Sure, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think over time that, that I've, 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 I've started to realize that that's a lot of what we're, we're doing actually is, as an urban farm is promoting, um, plant-based diets either directly or indirectly with, with growing, you know, what, what we think is like a hundred thousand pounds of super beautiful, super healthy, um, local fresh food each season, um, and getting that to the community. And, um, yeah, as, as, as we learn more and more and a lot of this stuff is not news, but, um, uh, we, we use a lot of land right now to, to grow corn and soy that goes to feed animals. And, and, and we have this super, super subsidized, super cheap um, animal meat available to us at grocery stores. And uh, I don't think it's doing society or Mother Nature or the Earth any, any favors right now with the amount of meat that we're consuming as a society. So um, that's something that's definitely sort of like almost like rebubbling up for us or, or at least for me to to in the philosophy of what we're doing just to continue to sort of promote like look how good this stuff is look at this diversity of flavors and and, and look at this and and you know especially comparing with like the concentrated animal feeding operations and and like the especially um packed industrial uh meat farming that's that's specifically what i'm talking about which is of course the the vast 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 majority of of the food that's out there yeah i was struck even when you're listing the some of the understory in the um food forest and then the perennials i mean you listed so many like berries for example and just like highlighting that for consumers who may be used to seeing at like a nice bodega or a trader joe's or whole foods three kinds of berries 
and they're not all local. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's just like there's a disconnect with like, but wait, there are so many plants and fungi. So, um, so many. So much and more even that's if you, edible that, that some we don't meat, eat. Yeah. yeah, like most of your food, most of your calories, most of your nutrients can come from those plants, those fungi. And you may not, you know, it's just that orientation, like you're saying, it's, it's a perspectival shift as much as anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. It'll yeah. take some time. And also just like all the substitutes that aren't necessarily like protein rich, but like, you know, how mushrooms have become a substitute a lot. I'm trying to think of, there's one other um, thing that comes up a lot that I feel like is found in more kind of, uh, maybe it's like Caribbean food, um, but it's a certain type of. Uh, the starch of some sort. Jackfruit? Or? Jackfruit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of come into its own Jackfruit. in yeah. package goods. Yeah. Um, is it a sweetener kind of? No, no, meat replacement. It's like yeah, it's, a fibrous. It's like a stringier than like a tempeh or seitan, but it's it's good. Uh-huh. It's it's like another kind of that. You you add the flavor to it, but it has a little more of the protein protein like nuttiness than uh than just tofu. Which, yeah. No offense, but I've always found the most bland of the sort of good for you meat replacements. Um, yeah. I love mushrooms, so I've just kind of just the more and more mushrooms I eat, I'm like, yeah, more and more mushrooms. Put them yeah. in everything. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, since, uh, so we, I think we are almost at time. So yep. Melissa, do you want to ask sort of big picture final question? Oh boy. Or no pressure. You, no. <laughs> we, can, we can tag team um, a final, uh, big, you know, what does the future look like? Yeah. Well, just, yeah. What, what are, what are you looking forward to in, you know, in more research or more projects that you all are doing or what's the, what's the kind of thing that, um, gets you excited to, you know, go to work tomorrow. What's, what's the next project or the next thing that you're kind of interested in? Mm-hmm. And maybe for the, and for urban ag as a whole, like, you, you know, yeah. doesn't have to be, it could be your project could be somebody else's just what's inspiring, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause urban ag obviously has a lot new, a lot of new momentum. I, I think that the USDA finally started to acknowledge mm-hmm. it in many ways. Um, you know, there's the, there's the new office in, in New York city that, that, that's been announced that's being funded. There's, um, you know, two two Cornell Extension agents in in New York City, which is amazing. You know, an amazing resource. Um, I think uh, you know, I think it has its challenges in terms of of like creating tons of jobs and tons of scale and everything. Um, I don't want to exaggerate like the the you know like the 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 ease that that will happen. Um, but I think that probably what's what's most exciting for me is that. I think it's it's kind of like an indirect connection, but like as these larger bureaucratic organizations are starting to acknowledge the urban agriculture, they're also acknowledging the power of it and the importance of it and also like sort of its its relevance to societal health, especially in, in cities. And the shifts that are super, super macro and also super important, like what we eat and like we're talking five, 10, 20 year outlooks with, with some of these shifts, but I believe that they will happen. Um, and that's, that's just hugely beneficial to, to the health of our society, to the health of our planet, um, to our healthcare system, to our brains, to getting more nutrients in, in our brains as, as muscles and, and for children and everything. So I think that's sort of like, it's a little bit of a looser link, but we have, the food, the momentum, hopefully funding and programs and resources, but also hopefully just like the acknowledgement of why it's important, if that makes sense. Yeah, I got it. So not just the resources, like more funding opportunities, like you mentioned um, in our CS. We spoke to some folks at USDA, was it a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, yeah. About, about some of these changes on their end. Right, they're and, very um, excited about it. NRCS, USDA, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and we're, we're hoping to speak with the Office of Urban Ag as soon as that's that's kind of up and running here. Um, and, and maybe at the state, it seems like they're thinking about a state level. So there's definitely energy. But as you said, that deeper shift and maybe the deeper yeah. why question is, is as important. Because the funding, that could be cyclic or political. That could go away. But it's not going to go away if there's enough people, if it's a constituency, you know, if it's a broad base. Mm-hmm. So right. That's we, super cool. We recently met the chief of the NRCS, and, and they have a lot of money coming into their budget through the um, – Inflation Reduction Act, and and he was specifically saying that that they really want to be studying like carbon sinks and you know different forms of the regenerative agriculture. It's such a buzzword, but but it's it's important, you know. And yeah. and, and so it's it's exciting that these larger government a- agencies that typically haven't you know been pioneering yeah. that type of you know progressive farming and changes to the infrastructure to changes to the you know the old guard of farming that that, that they're thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. 
That it's, is really exciting. Food for us. Food for us. Everywhere. So I think There's no inputs. Uh, lightning round and then Bird call food. it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Last, last thing. Yes. You might have to run. I'm sorry. No, no, no. no. Okay. Lightning round. Lightning round. Uh, ben, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. You're very generous. It's really great. I feel like we could talk more, but you know, again, we gotta let you go. Um, I do like talking. It's great. Um, so don't think about the answers too long. Just, just whatever comes to your head. Uh, favorite berry. Gooseberry. Favorite mushroom. Maitake. <laughs> Definitely maitake. Uh, favorite work of science fiction? Pass. Uh, favorite <laughs> song to listen to while growing plants or planting plants, doing any farm stuff? <laughs> Pass. Okay. Oh and last question. Favorite view uh, from a roof in, in New York City or favorite view from a roof anywhere? Any roof? Favorite roof? Uh, the Navy Yard. Our Navy Yard roof. I, I love that view. Look at looking north towards Manhattan. Okay, I just thought of a sort of science fiction that I just read, but half of it took place on a spaceship. Cloud Cuckoo Land. Cool. By Anthony Dorr. Awesome. Gonna look that okay. up. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been really great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, thanks everybody, at Brooklyn Grange, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad that um, y'all are doing well. So yeah. thanks for taking the time to to come chat with us. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Heritage Radio Network, uh, the best food radio and podcast in the world. Fields is powered by Riverside. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.